It's great to have you with us from wherever you're tuning in from. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app. We hope this message inspires and helps you to take your next steps in your journey. Hey, good morning. Great to have you here. Uh, and uh, we're in five, week five of a series we've called How We Fight Our Battles. Now, as we move through life, there are uh, logos and images and symbols that actually we can probably mostly recognize even without any description. For example, whoop, hello. Uh, no words, and yet I'm confident most of us know what these three logos represent. Now, maybe it's images of, of not of cities per se, but of uh, great icons within cities, and we look at them and we go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, and most of us, even if we haven't traveled there, would recognize this. Then there are, then there are symbols that are kind of pretty eclectic, but it's like, uh-huh, uh, yep, and oh, thank God because that's what we say when we're out in the wild and we need some internet access and we see that symbol. We're going to that coffee shop. It has Wi-Fi. Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Food, water, shelter, and high-speed internet access. Good, I'm sorted. I can go to be with the Lord now. But actually, if you ask the internet what is the most recognized symbol, having done that recently, there's actually a, I would say all, but I say a significant percentage of uh, internet sleuths indicating that the most recognized symbol in the world is the cross. And here's the thing. We see the cross in a lot of places. We see it on, outside of, of a lot of church buildings. We see it uh, peppered around cemeteries. Um, you'll see people wearing it as jewelry. Um, some people getting it tattooed on certain body parts. Um, some people even have it as a bumper sticker. This symbol of actually these days, a symbol of love, but actually it didn't start its life as a symbol of love. It actually started its life as the most excruciating form of capital punishment that the Roman Empire could actually conjure up. And so if you lived in the time of the Roman Empire and you somehow got ported into 2022 and you saw people wearing a cross around your neck, it would be a massive head scratcher. It's like people who lived through the French Revolution and now they walked around today, saw people with a guillotine hanging around their neck and they're like, did I miss something? This was a symbol of, of cruelty and of torture, and of both oppression and suppression. And yet something happened in history for this symbol of torture to now, and for, for hundreds of years, become the iconic symbol of love. So this series we've called How We Fight Our Battles. We've had four weeks already so far, brilliant, loving it, learning a lot. Today I wanna to talk about 
remembrance. You know, we've said in this series, How We Fight Our Battles, that God actually, most of the time, doesn't take us out of battles, but instead He gives us access to tools and weapons and resources that we can grab a hold of and use in the battle. And He works with them and with us and together actually leads us through the battles. And this, this may be maybe a little less obvious than some of the, the tools we've already taught about. Next week, we're gonna teach about worship as a tool that God gives us access to. But one of the important things to understand when we talk about remembrance in this context is remembering what Jesus went through on the cross actually magnifies the miracle. Having a greater appreciation, we weren't there. So we trust what we read in the eyewitness accounts and we try to you know, imagine it and okay, we maybe have seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ and so on and so forth. And so you know, we have some insight, but let me, let me tell you what Oswald Chambers wrote. Now, Oswald Chambers was a Scottish minister in the late 1800s. Let me, let me read what he wrote, uh, which is actually kind of a warning. He wrote, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, all hell terribly afraid of it, while people are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. And so what we're gonna do today is not be those people, is is not just look at a building with a cross on it or a, a necklace with a cross on it or a bumper stick with a cross on it and go, oh yeah, you know, Probably shouldn't honk you. Sorry about that. Uh, But actually, take some time today to remember what Jesus did on the cross. And not just what he did, but what he made possible for you and I because of what he did. So when he was hung on a cross, the process was known as crucifixion. And the, the Roman Empire had gotten this process dialed in to become the most painful method of capital punishment that they could possibly come up with. And they were using it like, they were using it. It was written of the Roman Empire that they were starting to run out of trees because they were hanging so many people on crosses. And, and what they were doing by hanging these people on crosses, which was, which was very obvious to people living in the Roman Empire at that time, which by the way, not everyone chose to live in the Roman Empire, which is called conquering in many parts of the, the known empire. The Roman Empire was sending a message to them. Stay in line. In other words, do what we tell you to do or, or, or you could be next. This could be you or your spouse or your kids, or someone else that you love in your sphere. It was a very intentional and very intense message. And Jesus met this fate for for being accused of, well, a few things, but essentially being seen as a threat to the hierarchy of both the Jewish religious leaders and potentially, ultimately, the Roman authorities. Uh, But when it came to Jesus... Hanging him on a cross wasn't enough. For some reason, both the soldiers and then some kind of bystanders, 
they decided to actually take him through a very long and gruesome process um, to weaken him and to further humiliate him. It started with them whipping him. Now, here's an example of the whip. So, Because again, we don't have this. We don't see this. But this is an example of the type of whip they would have likely used. And yes, it's got a wooden handle. And yes, it's got leather straps. But it's also got these other bits and pieces, bits of metal and bone and rock. And so this was designed to both inflict pain on contact and rip flesh and muscle off on removal. Jesus was whipped by this type of cross 40 times. It was very uncommon for somebody to survive into the 30s. This was so brutal and so effective. <laughs> and yet Jesus did, did endure and did survive to 40, which I imagine caught some of them by surprise. So they didn't stop there. They proceeded to spit on him, punch him in the face, mock him. They, they found like poles with, with reeds to just beat him even further. And then both in both physical torture and also mock, they, they you know, you're a king, are you? Well, every king needs a crown. And so they placed the crown of thorns on him. That's both to mock him. You know, oh yeah, some king you are, mate. You, you're about to be killed. Kings aren't meant to be killed. So I guess you're probably not a king. And then a crown of thorns to inflict more physical pain on him. And those soldiers and, and the people nearby, it's written that they continued mocking him until they were tired. Not until he was tired. I don't know whether they were physically tired or the, the, the novelty wore off, but at, at the point that they gave up the mocking, they then began the official process of crucifixion. And this wasn't unusual, but it would have been unusual for someone to be in such a poor physical state to then be expected to carry the horizontal beam of the cross. But that's what would have been par for the course. So he's wearing this mocking sign, King of the Jews, and, and having to carry, you know, this guy's been whipped to the point of death and then mocked and humiliated. And this beam would have been about two meters in length and about 40 kilos average weight, which, you know, and then had to carry it up a hill. I mean, come on now. Unless you're into CrossFit, this would have been a challenge on your best day. And he continued to be mocked as he went on this journey, carrying the very implement that he was ultimately going to draw his last breath being hung on. And then the Romans... When the person got to the place, when Jesus got to the place where the upright beam was ready to be put in position, they would attach the horizontal beam and the upright beam, and then they would attach the, the, the whoever, you know, in this case, Jesus, attach him physically to the cross by hammering in nails. <laughs> and again, the Romans had figure out, figured out where to hammer those nails, not just 
where was gonna be the most effective to hold them up, but where was gonna be the most excruciatingly painful to be driven in, where there was nerve endings. And so then they eventually hung Jesus up on this cross and he hung there naked on a Friday from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. And during those six unimaginable hours, he spoke seven statements from the cross. And, and, and yes, these have become known as his famous last words, but they, were, they weren't just any words. They were very intentional. And they carry in them actually far more meaning. And, and I'm not projecting this on you. I'm the same. I learned a lot even preparing this message. They, 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 have, they contain far more power and meaning than maybe we would kind of get to unless we drilled into it a bit deeper. So that's what I want to do today. And so if you've got your uh, Bible app, you can follow along, scan the flow code here. Uh, sorry about those people sitting on the far side. We'll got a new lamp on order, but you can scan this flow code. It's going to take you to Luke chapter 23. Now, I'm going to talk about these seven, and they're not all contained in Luke, so you might have to kind of jump around with me. We're going to have them on the screen as well, uh, but I love to be able to follow along either way. You can highlight verses. You can make notes and so on and so forth. Now, just before I get into this, church veterans, and you know who you are, uh, You've probably heard all of these seven statements before in some way, shape, or form, and I get that. So had I. Uh, what I want to invite you to do this morning is to lean in, because God's Word is alive, and I believe there's going to be freshness and something new that God is going to reveal to you, um, again, to magnify the miracle that Jesus made possible. So here's the first thing that Jesus said. He's just been nailed to the cross and they've just put him in the upright position. Having gone through everything he's gone through to this point on that day. And he said this astonishing statement. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Can we just be honest for a second here? If that had been you, having gone through everything that Jesus went through, is this going to be the kind of your default thought, or are you are you are you more likely to say, God, send the uh, uh, send the angels, the strong ones, you know? Because some of you have ordered a drone strike for someone that's cut you off in traffic, and 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 yet Jesus has been through all this, and his default is forgiveness. The first of these famous last words, the first thing he thought of, the first thing he defaulted to, the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them. And this is a reminder of two things. Number one, of actually what's at the core of the heart of God. That he's not up there trying to get you. He's, 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 he wants to restore you. He wants to be in relationship with us. And He's going to do whatever it takes. And this invitation, this, this 
Forgiveness is, is literally one decision away for every single one of us to say, Jesus, can you please forgive me? And he's like, man, it, it, forgiveness is on the tip of my tongue because it's at the core of the heart of, of who I am. And, and, and the other thing that this reminds us of, he, he's forgiving people who don't deserve forgiveness. <laughs> They're guilty. They just did what they did. Willingly, knowingly, they went the extra mile in the bad side of going the extra mile. And yet, forgive them. Now, Jesus wasn't the only person crucified on that day in that space. He was actually placed in between two thieves. And, and so there was three crosses in that, in that place, in that moment. And one of the thieves... I guess he thought he had nothing to lose. I don't know. But he decided to join in the mocking. He spins around to Jesus. I mean, he spins around to Jesus and says, Hey, mate, you're a king, are you? Well, why don't you, you know, get down off the cross. I mean, save yourself. Oh, and by the way, how about you save me as well while you're at it? And the thief on the other side yells back, claps back at him and says, Listen, we're here because we deserve to be here. We, we did what we did. This man has done no wrong. So shut up. <laughs> and then he kind of, he turns to Jesus and says, can you remember me today when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus said, yeah. I can assure you that today you will be with me in paradise. So here's, here's something this statement shows us. This thief had nothing to offer Jesus apart from contrition. He couldn't go back to restore the, the, the items that he'd stolen from people. He couldn't. And, and in this culture, the way people got right with God was to do good things, to bring sacrifices, to kind of, you know, rebalance the scales. All the bad stuff got things out of whack. But if I do some good stuff, if I sacrifice enough, we can get the scales back in. This guy didn't have that option. He, 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 he literally had nothing to offer God in that moment except for contrition. And Jesus reminded him and reminds us, that our opportunity to get right with Jesus is not about what we can do to make it right. I mean, he might then challenge us to some acts of restitution with maybe people we've hurt. But, but, in, but in terms of how to get right with God, it's not about what we can do. It's about what he makes possible in this moment. Now, there weren't just mockers in attendance. Most of Jesus' followers had since left at some point in this entire morning. Some of them, because they just were, exper had, were experiencing profound disappointment, 
We thought this was the king. We thought this was the Messiah. We thought this was the one that God had promised that was going to come in and make things right, overturn the Roman Empire. And, and, and now he's on a cross. Doesn't seem like the one that we've been waiting for and, and out of their disappointment they left. I think that's a reasonable thing to understand. Then there were some of Jesus' followers. They fled for fear that they would be next. That people would be like, hey, which by the way happened to a guy named Peter. Weren't you one of his... And they were like... "Uh." And And so they're in hiding. But thankfully Jesus wasn't completely abandoned in this moment. His mother, Mary was there. This is the same Mary who, as a teenager, was visited by an angel and said, you will give birth to a son. You'll call him Emmanuel, and he will be the chosen one of God that will make all things right for all people. Uh, Who then gave birth to him, who then raised him as a son in a human way. And yet now, 33 and a half years later, she's at the foot of a cross. And and I don't mean to make light of this, because I know some of you have lost children, but in an ideal in an ideal setting, no parents should have to watch their children uh, go, and especially in this manner. But there was Mary, and then alongside Mary, one of the other people who'd stuck around was a was a guy named John. Now, John was one of Jesus' handpicked twelve, and for whatever reason, during the three years and change that that John and the other eleven had followed Jesus, <laughs> he became like the closest one to Jesus. Um, now, and they, they weren't related. Mary and John, not related in any way. And yet Jesus looked down to them and said, Dear woman, here is your son. And then said to John, Here is your mother. In, in what was nearing the final stages of Jesus' life on earth, he was concerned about the welfare of other people. Like this wasn't his problem in a couple of hours' time. And yet he prioritized the people that were around him. And I hope that this would give great comfort and encouragement to some of us this morning. That Jesus' best isn't that we go through life alone. And yeah, there'll be struggles. I mean, that's why we're teaching a series called How We Fight Our Battles. But that God, Jesus wants to connect people with you that are going to actually journey with you and with us. Um, and if you're doing life alone, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, and maybe that has to become one of the prayers. Jesus, you know, bring those people around me through life. And then Jesus said this kind of sticky thing. My God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? Now, you've probably prayed that prayer before, right? If you've ever prayed honest prayers with your big boy pants on and your big girl pants on, and you realize that God always wears his big boy pants, and so he's not afraid of honest prayers. He's not offended by them. He's not intimidated by them. He's not going to cancel you because of them. But for the Son of God to pray this, is like, really, Jesus, are you... Are you really doubting God's presence in your life at this moment? Like this doesn't make sense to me, but it would have made sense to the people that were around him that day. 
Because what Jesus was doing is he was actually quoting verse 1, or what we now call verse 1, of Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22, it's the less famous one that comes before Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So yes, unfortunately, Psalm 22 gets overlooked. It's not his fault. But he's there. He was written by the same guy that wrote Psalm 23. And David opened this up with the words, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because David in that moment was, was, was under attack. He was in the midst of a battle. And he was like, God, come on now. He prayed an honest prayer. And then he went on to, and this is bonkers. I mean, just bonkers. Then David went on to write in this honest prayer, a picture of the stuff that was being taken from him through this, the people that were, you know, looking for him and, and, and trying to take him out. And David actually described having nails driven into his hands and feet, being mocked by, by people nearby and being crucified. And he wrote that hundreds of years, listen to me, before crucifixion was even a thing. No one had invented it. At this stage. So David was very much, he wasn't in that moment talking about himself and exactly what he was going to go through. He was actually looking into the future, a thing we call prophesying, church word, into the future about what was going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he started reciting Psalm 22. And what he's saying in the moment is this thing that was forecast, that was predicted, that was recorded, that was prophesied hundreds of years ago. Hey, it was about me. And I'm not here by accident. I'm not here as a victim. I've chosen to come here. I've chosen to be put in this position. And I want you to know that you don't need to feel sorry for me. That, that this is part of God's eternal plan. My God, hello. Did anyone just learn anything right there? I know, it's, it's impressive. I didn't say I'm impressive because I learned that. I didn't know that. But the people gathering around Jesus, they would have known that. The, the, the Psalms are the songbook of Israel. They would have sung this all of the time. All right, and then Jesus says something that requires no explanation. I am thirsty. <laughs> this is one of those Captain Obvious statements. See, like when Jesus first kind of uh, emerged into the public sphere, uh, he fasted for 40 days. And, and the writer says at the end of the 40 days, Jesus was hungry. Yeah, some of you skip breakfast and all you can think about is right now is what's for lunch. 40 days, he's hungry. Yeah, okay, Next. He's gone through everything he's gone through and he says, I am thirsty. And in this moment, something looked like, something happened that looked like the first act of compassion that Jesus had been the recipient of in this whole gruesome process. Somebody got a sponge that had been soaked in some liquid and attached it to a reed and held it up to Jesus' mouth which sounds incredible, what, like, wow. You know, the only people there was Mary, John, a couple of, and then mockers. And one of them reaches out to Jesus with some liquid, but then we discovered that it was sour wine or it was vinegar. And Jesus' mouth and face and body was exposed, cut, bleeding. 
Do I need to finish this sentence? The worst thing you could put on an open wound is some form of acidic liquid. So this person wasn't helping Jesus. They were like, this could be my last chance to add to the mockery. Yet, Jesus is communicating to the people there and to us today that he was willing to thirst so that you and I would never have to. He previously described himself as living water. In fact, not just living water, but he said he, he is streams of living water, unending living water. And then he said that same living water is not just available to you, but if you open yourself to it, it's gonna actually flow through you. And so you'll never, you and I, as followers of Jesus, or when we become followers of Jesus, we never have to thirst again because Jesus himself put him through this process. And then the sixth thing he said is, is this, it is finished. I'm a curious person. Used to drive my mother bonkers when I was young. Why? What's this do? And uh, that very trait is helpful when I read something like this because I want to know what the it is. What's finished? Now, you think, well, his life, duh. But actually, it wasn't yet, and, and that's actually, sorry, if you did think that, wrong. <laughs> in fact, in that uh, setting, like we have this sliced and diced in English into three words, but, but, but Jesus would have actually used one word, and it was, it was an accounting word. It was the word that if you owed somebody money, let's say you'd been paying it off in installments or whatever the arrangement was, when you had paid the final installment, when you had paid back everything that you owed that other person, they would write this word on the paperwork. Translation, it is finished. You no longer owe me anything. You've done everything you committed to do. You've paid back everything you owed me. And I'm letting you know, you're free. You're free and clear. One of the early heavyweights of the church is a guy named Paul. And he uses this, this phrase. It's, again, an accounting phrase. When it comes to sin, now sin, I know it's not a politically correct word, but by the way, it still applies. We would define sin as thinking, saying, doing things that are less than God's best, less than God's holy standard, which we all do. And Paul says, when we do those things, that what we earn is death. He says, the wages of sin is death. It's like, well, Paul, sound like a big wet blanket. But, 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 but it, this is actually true. This is actually why Jesus had to do what he had to do. Because when we sin, we actually rack up debts to God that we can never repay. Because God's holy and we're not. And, and 
And so that gap, that, that relationship, it's never going to be able to come back together. We are never going to be able to afford the repayments. So, so these words are never going to be said by us from God. All of your uh, good deeds, all of your fancy prayers, all of your, it, they're never going to get the debt paid off. You're never going to hear, and I'm never going to hear God say to us, it is finished. You're good. You're done. We're sweet. It's never going to happen if it was up to us, if it was left to our devices and our cleverness and our actions and our reparations. But that's the whole thing that Jesus came and he offered his life as a payment on our behalf that we could never afford, that gave us, when we put our faith in Jesus, the opportunity to hear God say the words to us, it is finished. You don't owe me anything. We are right again. And then, Moments before Jesus took his last breath, he said, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And, and, and this was not an admission of defeat. This was an admission of completion. This, this was an acknowledgement that, God, everything that you sent me to do, I've done. Everything you've charged me to do, I've fulfilled that to, my, to the best of my... And there's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing else for me to do here. It, there's no, I'm coming home. Dad, Dad, I'm coming home. I'll see you soon. Because I've done what you asked me to do. I'm not a victim. I'm, I'm, I'm here by choice. And I'm a victor and I'm offering that victory to people that put their faith in me, that accept this gift and accept what I've made possible by going through this entire ordeal. So you would have given, hopefully, if you haven't, maybe just wave your hand, given one of these clever little doodads. Uh, it's got a cracker on the top. It's got a bit of juice at the bottom. If you peel the top bit off, and just full disclosure, I once stood up here struggling to get that off, and it's very awkward, embarrassing. That's why they pay me the big bucks, danger money. Uh, just take that cracker out, and look, some of you church veterans, you know what's going on here, but let me catch everyone up. This is something that Jesus instructed us to do, um, to remember not just Him, and not just to remember what he did, and we've certainly gone through some of that journey this morning, but ultimately to remember what he made possible because of what he did. And, and these two little doodads, it's a cracker and it's some juice, and, and they're just symbols. There's nothing fancy about these. I, I grew up as a Catholic. The Catholics have a different belief system when it comes to this, and I'm not dunking on them. I'm just saying we don't have any special, think these have any special magical powers. So... Uh, but, but they point us to something. And Jesus encouraged his followers to, to think of like a, a bit of bread, or in this case, a cracker, 
think of not the cracker, but think of his body. Think of everything that he, yes, fully God and also fully human, went through in this whole ordeal. Um, And what that's made possible, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, purpose, meaning, victory, not abandonment. So how about you uh, take that now, just get together. We take that. And then you can uh, take the second bit off. And, and this, again, this is just, just symbolic. And it, this could be water. It could be orange juice. Like, again, the, the item. The item isn't the thing. The item is a symbol to point us to. Again, Jesus' blood shed for us. Jesus' blood poured out for us. Um, and what was made possible by that. So how about you drink that now and and then I'm going to pray. Jesus, we present ourselves today as people who know that in our own devices, we're not worthy of everything you did and everything you made possible. We thank you that, that, that you love us so incredibly, that you were willing to abandon heaven. You were willing to put yourself through this entire process because you wanted to make it possible for us to have our relationship with, with your heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, restored. And so that when we think of everything you went through, not just on Easter weekend, but we think of it throughout our daily lives, throughout our weeks, God, we thank you. That just reminds us of the magnitude of the miracle, of what you've made possible for us, of the, the fact that you brought heaven to earth and you, and you gave us the opportunity to step into that place of, of forgiveness, of reconciliation and of restoration. And God, I pray that, that this heightened revelation that I hope and I trust that we've, we're going to take from here this morning, that that will inspire us even further to not hold this truth to ourselves as if we're some exclusive elitist club and, 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 and you know, we're it. We, like, we're done. We're in. That you would actually inspire us to greater levels to want to ensure that the people in our sphere also become exposed to this forgiveness that's available to them, this reconciliation that's also available to them, this restoration and relationship that's also available to them. In Jesus' name, amen. We really hope you got a lot out of this message. If you live in the Perth area, we'd love for you to join one of our live experiences. For times and directions, as well as information, head to our website, elevatechurch.me. 
For those of you beyond the Perth area, we'd love for you to connect with our online experience, which premieres every Sunday via YouTube and Facebook Live, and on demand immediately after. And to partner with us to reach more people by giving financially, head to our website, elevatechurch.me, and also download our Elevate Church AU app.